Hello and welcome to the June 28th, 2018 edition of Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. My name is Mr. Joe. This is my neighborhood. This is my life. But this is our podcast journey. Welcome to Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. It's good to have everybody here with me today. And of course, it's wonderful to be there with you. So today is very important, very important for me to discuss something that has transpired, actually on two separate occasions. And I really ask that my audience provide me some feedback, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be through email, for for once in our podcast journey, I am specifically asking for feedback in terms of whether or not you have dealt with this situation in your life. Because I'm not sure if I'm alone. I'm not sure if I'm alone. I'm not sure if this is something that has to do with bipolar disorder. And I have to tell you, a lot of times when I'm unsure about a topic that I plan on speaking to, I will look up some information. And I and I refuse to do so with this particular topic because I wanted it to be as genuine, as sincere, and as straight from my heart and soul as possible. And of course, there's going to be uh, a complete honesty embedded within what I say, and I have to tell you that it is absolutely not going to be easy to share. Uh, it's it's something that I don't want to say I'm ashamed of, but it's something that, again, I don't have a whole lot of answers to or um, suggestions as to how I can stop myself from doing this or lighten up a little bit, <laughs> if that makes any sense, before I actually go on to describe what I'm talking about, and I'll get there quickly, but I thought it was important that I update everybody on my um, my current state, and for the most part, I've been relatively stable. I will say this, that my irritability level has been, um, for lack of better terms, higher than it's been in quite some time. I displayed a lot of irritability last night. Uh, I actually was... I had a schedule to go to my nephew's baseball game, Little League baseball game, and uh, we were supposed to be there for 6.30. It was only about a 15-minute car ride, and I will say this, right before I um, left with my wife and my son, I was so irritable, and I don't remember exactly what I did. I think I slammed a closet or I slammed a a door um, because I was agitated, and I don't even remember about what, but... My wife did turn around and said, you know what, why don't you just stay home? <laughs> um, and, and I was glad that, that I took that comment from her as a warning to say, get your nonsense together, Mr. Joe, and cut it out and either take her advice and, and don't ruin everybody else's time or pull it together, get in the car and keep your mouth shut and go. Because in the past, that would have provoked a fight with Mr. Joe unmedicated Mr. Joe would have went right back at her um, and ultimately would have blamed her for the way that I was feeling. But 
I uh, prevented myself from doing so. And I have to tell you, it was a nice time at the field. But even on the way home, my son, Mickey, he was a monster. I mean, he was overtired and he basically screamed the whole ride home. And whether it's 10 minutes or 10 hours, when you got a screaming baby in the back, it's not easy, especially when you are irritable. And I have to say, I actually, although I huffed and I puffed and I moaned and I groaned and I made comments, I don't believe this, what's wrong with him? And I ultimately pulled it together. I took a deep breath and I kind of took the same approach that I took when I walked out the door as to when I was going home. And I let him cry and I didn't say much. And believe it or not, I was actually the sole caretaker and sole solution maker Last night at about one in the morning, uh, Mickey's been sleeping in his own crib. And two nights ago, my wife had a horrific experience in which she cried and cried and cried. He wanted to come into our bed and she tried everything imaginably possible to get him to remain in his crib. You know, the whole rock him to sleep and, and try to put him down gently and escape out of the room and all the things that we've done as parents. Um, and nothing worked, and ultimately he he stayed in our bed. He started crying last night at the exact same time as two nights before, and she, you know, we both woke up, and my wife says, what do I do here? You're the parent. <laughs> You're the one that's done this twice already. Now on your third time, what do I do? Do I go in there? Do I have the same night as last night? Do I give in? Do I not give in? I said, well, here's the situation. I said, we give him a little longer to cry it out. I said, but ultimately... You have to remember that this is relatively new for him. And it's important that at some point we make a time frame in which we go in there because we have to make sure nothing is wrong. Odds are he just wants out and he just wants to be with us. But there have been times in the past where I let him cry it out. And it was only one time, but it's enough to stick in my mind that I went in late at night it smelled like poop and he did a poop and I would not, I don't want to leave him in that all night long so you know and so many things go through my head did he pee through his diaper is he laying in urine in his crib um, you know is he teething does he need Motrin does he need gas drops so you always want to go in and just check and if if the situation is that he just wants out you'll know it so I decided to go in last night. I said to my wife, I said, you stay here. Let me take care of this. And I went in and sure as anything, the first thing that he did was try to hop into my arms. He started pointing to the bedroom, towards my bedroom. He wanted out and he wanted to come into the bed. And that, that gave me full understanding that this was something that he needed to work through and cried out. But rather than just leave him, I kind of took him and I sat him back down in his crib and he screamed and cried. But then in a sitting up position, because he is so stubborn, he won't even lay down. In a sitting up position, I kind of just held his head in my arms, or my hands actually, and I just rubbed his temples, and the little devil fell asleep in my hands sitting up. I laid him down, sitting up, removed my hands. He cried just a little bit, but he was tired enough where he just kind of went out. And uh, you know, my wife thanked me when I came back in. She said, I don't know how you did that, but... Again, you know, when you're a father before being a father all over again, things come relatively easy to you. So we work together as a team, and that's great. Nevertheless, the irritability is still there, but I worked through it yesterday. Another thing that I have to relate to the Suboxone withdrawal 
uh, would happen to be my energy level. Guys, I wake up in the morning and it is really difficult for me to move. I mean, really difficult. I mean, my body feels like it is in slow motion. Now, I'm grateful that that feeling has gone away. It started out that way this morning, and it is relatively gone now. Um, so I'm hoping that it's just something like a morning thing. I, I would imagine it's just my body getting used to functioning all over again without a substance such as suboxone within my bloodstream, uh, something that would give me an, uh, a tremendous amount of energy in the morning, um, something that I relied on, something that I was physically addicted to is no longer in my body. So it only makes sense. So my energy is definitely um, lacking, to, to say the least. The other thing that I've been dealing with in terms of my stability, and again, in terms of mood swings, I have to say I'm relatively stable. Nothing that is uh, breaking the bank, so to speak, or you know, causing an emergency or uh, anything along those lines, but some, some subtle symptoms that are worth reporting on, and one that has actually led me to describe exactly what I need help with or what I need to talk through. And that's been my paranoia. My paranoia has been at an all-time high as of late. And I, if I was to attribute it to something medically or medication-wise, I would say that it has been the removal of the Seroquel because Seroquel actually helped me a lot with my paranoia. So it has seemed to return quite a bit now. I'm paranoid about two things. One, I'm paranoid about daily occurrences, people wanting to speak to me, text messages, hey, are you around? Uh, simple things like that, that from people that really are not my boss, are not my superior, but coworkers, you know, and I'm just simple text messages of people wanting to talk to me have somewhat thrown me for a loop. And I imagine the worst. And it's, it's, it's somewhat disturbing, I have to say. Now, the other thing that has gone on because of my paranoia, my brain has caused me to start thinking about two things that I've done over the past couple of weeks, which is the topic and the subject of our podcast today. And that is what I refer to oversharing. Oversharing information about my mental illness and oversharing information about bipolar disorder and what I go through and what I might be suffering from or what I might be feeling at the moment or simply just dictating to another person that, hey, I have bipolar disorder. And I'm not going to get into extreme details on the situations in terms of how I um, shared or where I shared or who I shared to, but I'm going to, I have to briefly describe it. A couple of weeks ago, as many of you know, I provide consultation within schools. Uh, and in this, on this particular day, I was consulting for a, a group of six children, ages 9, 10, and 11, in a classroom, all with autism. And my job is to go in, work with the children, work with the staff, analyze the behaviors, come up with strategies, make sure that all the staff members are utilizing them, model those strategies, work directly with the kids, and make sure that everybody utilizes the exact strategies that I either put into a plan or just do on a daily basis. And since the school year is coming to an end, 
the uh, the workload and our interactions with the children have been minimized to an extent where we're not doing a whole lot. It's kind of like a free-for-all, you know, I guess you could say that. We care about them. We want them to do well, but the work has ended. Now, that doesn't mean I allow them to misbehave and engage in their behaviors that you typically see with children with autism spectrum disorder, but it's a little bit more free-flowing. And what that allows for, ultimately, is for us as adults, and by the way, there are one-to-one teacher assistants for each kid, so if you think about it, there are six teacher aides or assistants in the class in addition to two regular teachers or special educators. And so that makes a total of eight adults on their end, and then one being myself, so you got nine, and then of course the other related services that pop in and out. And what I mean by that is all the children get physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech. So at any given time, you have a total of 10 adults in a classroom. And because we've had more time over the last couple of weeks to just chat, you know, we don't get to do that a whole lot. I I became relatively close. I don't want to say close. (laughs) Here's the problem. I think I'm close. (laughs) And here is the sick, sick thing. And this is not made up, everybody. I've been working with this woman for one year. And if you were to ask me her first and last name, I could not even tell you. I could not even tell you. So here I am saying, oh, we became close. And I don't even know her first and last name. And I've been instructing her and talking with her and teaching her for the last year. That is the Um, you know, is that good or bad? To some extent, it's good because you don't want to develop a personal relationship with these people. It's just supposed to be professional. But at the same token, believe me when I tell you, I find myself a lot of times just saying, good morning, rather than good morning, Sarah, good morning, Jennifer, good morning. I just don't remember names. So it's never been questioned. It's never been an issue. And it certainly wasn't questioned when we were out on the playground the other day and we started to talk about one of the children in the class and her eyes happened to dilate. And she explained to me that this child's eyes had been dilated for the most part over the last week. And I'm only there one time a week, so she reported to me that this child's eyes had been dilated. The mood that this child was in was extremely self-stimulatory, which means that She was a little hyper. She was flapping her arms quite a bit. She was doing what we call a lot of self-talk, which is more or less the the proper term for that is echoalia, which is a lot of times uh, scripting from movies and things that don't make a whole lot of sense. They're certainly not regular conversation. They will just talk um, Disney movies, things of that nature. So that has been increased over the last week or so, along with the dilated pupils. And she went on to say, I think there is something different here, or in addition to the autism, I think there is some kind of a psychiatric concern here. And I don't happen to disagree with her, but that was all I needed to hear for me on the playground to come out and say, I hear you. And you know what? Guess what? I have a psychiatric condition. I have bipolar disorder. And I got to tell you, her, her eyes widened And she said, oh, and I got to tell you, nothing can stop a conversation quicker than oversharing about our mental illness 
and whether that be about what medications we're taking, what side effects we're having, or just in general, hey, yo, I'm bipolar. And ultimately, the conversation ended like this. Well, I would have never known that. And how long have you had it, she asked me. And I said, well, I've had it my whole life, or at least I just discovered or came to the conclusion or removed myself from the denial of thinking that I didn't have bipolar and recognizing that I did as of this January. And I overshared that information with her. I did. I don't know this person. And you know what? When I walked back in from the playground, I became so paranoid about the fact that I just shared that information with her that I said, do me a favor, please don't share that with anybody. And she said, oh, no, of course not. I never will. And I said to myself, what the heck was the point of me sharing that if I was going to ask her not to share it with anybody at all? Um, and, I, and I felt worried about it. And I, I got to tell you, the odds are that everybody in that classroom, all other seven or eight adults probably know, all know now that I have bipolar disorder. It hasn't been brought up again, and I hope it's been forgotten, but it's, it's something that I probably um, put myself in a position where people now know about my mental illness. And... Uh, you know, why do I do this? I, I, I guess because I try to help others to find their own voices and talk to them about mental health problems. Um, I, I want to say that I don't want to let my bipolar disorder defeat me and at least convince me or persuade me to go back to a place where my struggles can't be spoken about. And I hope that by sharing some of my experiences or my mental illness, maybe I can help others who are struggling. But you have to pick and choose who you are sharing with. The other day, a consultant came in that will be helping myself on a grant where I will be going into a variety of different schools and I will be educating them on autism and the benefits of vocational programming. And what that means is children with autism have to learn how to work. For those of that are capable of working, we have to teach schools on how to make them work and get them functioning in everyday life. And one of the problems that I'm going to have is finding my way into schools and having them accept me to speak to them on a free basis. And you would say to yourself, well, it's free. Why would they deny you? Well, there are a lot of factors involved. Schools have to find substitutes, you have to find your direct audience, you got to figure out who you exactly need to talk to. Are there staff members, are there life coaches, are there transition coordinators, are there administrators, principals, who is your target audience? And there is nobody better than grabbing the superintendent of a school that I contract with that is no longer the superintendent but was one for over 30 years. And he happens to be the president of an organization that I am closely tied to. And I am not going to name that organization, but it is a nonprofit organization that is directly involved with special education. And I am a big deal in this particular um, association. As a matter of fact, we had a, we had a, um, a wonderful seminar, a wonderful scholarship function a couple of months back. 
I mean, and I was sat at the main table with all the president, the secretary, and the uh, vice president. And it was an honor. It was an absolute honor. And I, I would imagine some of it's because I, I donate a lot of money through my company. I write them out a lot of checks. But regardless, I've developed a friendship with these people. And it is a genuine, sincere friendship. I, I am away with them at least once a year. As a matter of fact, one of the stories that I shared with everybody... Uh, about my former supervisor stealing a bottle behind the bar and being fired, terminated from our agency. Uh, that happened to be at one of those events. So I've been going to those events for nearly a decade, and I'm very close with the superintendent. He's a great man, and we had him come in, my boss and I, and we sat down, and we wanted to explore his thoughts in terms of the best way to get into schools and promote this idea and for the most part, he's got so many connections that he would just kind of set it up for us. And we're paying him a fee of $5,000 um, just to kind of map out a plan for me to get into about 10 or 15 different schools. Now, I contract with 15 different schools, but many of them already have a vocational program into place. So I need some extra help. So that's what he was there for. Now, my boss was not with us in the beginning, and I went and I retrieved this gentleman from the lobby, and I brought him up to our boardroom. And we sat down and, hey, Mr. Joe, this is nice, you know, nicer than your office even. You got a nice boardroom. Oh, yeah, it's great. So we sat down and it's, it's interesting because a couple of people have made this comment. And I've only been to the gym, back at the gym, maybe five times total in the last two weeks. But when you've worked out all your life, I guess you have what's called mes muscle memory. So, you know, you could lose a lot of size, even over the period of three years. But when you start working out again, you get what's called this pump and things start coming back. Your muscles start to develop again. Happens relatively quickly for somebody who has worked out for such a long time, even though it's been such a long layoff. Somebody in our agency the other day said to me, you look different. Did you gain weight? You look great. It was a nice compliment. And then as I'm sitting there yesterday talking with this consultant, I had the second comment thrown my way as he looked me up and down. And he says to me, you look really good. And we started talking about my neck injury, how I'm back at the gym. And I don't know what came over me, but I decided to tell this man, who, again, I am very close with, I said, I got to be honest with you. I said, ever since I stopped going to the gym three and a half years ago, I said, my mental health has deteriorated. And he said, I could understand that. I said, you know, the, the brain and the body, they're connected. And I got to tell you guys, it would have been fine if I would have left it just like that. That's, that's knowledge. That's informational stuff being presented to somebody just on a regular conversational level, factual information, the brain and the body is connected. Nothing at all wrong with saying that. So after he agreed, what does Mr. Joe go ahead and do? And I, I turn around and, and I say, well, we'll just call him consultant for now. I say, you know, consultant, I have bipolar disorder. Boom. I just come right out and I say it. It's almost like I can't turn my thoughts off and I just say them out loud. And that's what I want feedback on. Does anybody out there feel like I feel with those of you who have bipolar disorder and even borderline personality di disorder? I believe that is, that is a component of the two. It's like I can't turn my thoughts off and I say them out loud. 
And this is something that I've struggled with many, many times in the past. And many times throughout the course of my career, I've had to dig my way out of problems because of things that I've said about myself. And I've had to deny them. I never said that. That's not true. You know, it's one thing to be a mental health advocate and to try to stop the stigma. And I, I keep rationalizing with myself. And I say, well, you know what? If I had diabetes, I wouldn't have a problem sharing that with the office. Not a big deal. But I guess because it's a mental illness and no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter what year it is, there is still that stigma. And I guess it's just not acceptable. Or at least, even if it is, I'll tell you this, it's making me damn paranoid to think about what I've shared. So I, 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 I think I have to come up with ways to prevent myself from doing these things. Um, and how I do that, I don't know. I really don't. I'm thinking, obviously, one of the best ways to go about this is think about what you're going to say before you say it. And it's easier said than done. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this. But if I could say to myself, what, what's the outcome of what you're going to say? Is it positive? Is it negative? Does it mean anything? What are you going to achieve by saying what you are about to say? Maybe that'll help me. Maybe that'll stop me. Think about the situation that we're in, who we're, who we're going to be around, where we are attending, who will be there. And I guess ask ourselves, even beforehand, even though you don't know you're going to do this, make it a habit or at least I'm going to make it a habit, to say to myself, will this be the place and the time to talk about my bipolar disorder and just how well do I know these people? You know, listen, if it's my best buddies that I've been friends with for 20 years, go. I guess go for it. Might bore the hell out of them because they've heard it so many times. They've heard so much about my problems that, you know, might bore them, but at least it'll be accepted. I mean, then again, think about a family function of that matter. Uh, you know, really, in my family, I could probably only think of one person, or maybe two, if I was still had a relationship with my parents, my mother and my father, uh, they're probably the only ones that would want to know how I'm really doing, and I put that really in quotation marks. Everybody else, they may just want to talk about the weather, or how my children are doing, or how about work. Maybe they don't want to discuss bipolar disorder, maybe it just brings them down. Uh, you know, and, and I don't realize that. I, I, I just realize that it's on my mind. I want to talk about it. And I have to tell you, it is a strong indication to me when I do these things that I am hypomanic. Because it seems to me that the more manic I am, the more I cannot control myself. And I think... Oversharing, oversharing a mental illness, oversharing your, um, your even if it's oh, I'm going to have an anxiety attack or I had it, uh, had a panic attack yesterday, or um, and, and again people use these terms so loosely, which bothers me as well. Oh, I have OCD. Well, because you clean, that's actually quite, um, it's actually quite rude to say those things. He has bipolar disorder. He's so up and down. Well, how do you know? How do you know he has bipolar disorder? I'm going to have a panic attack. I'm so OCD. These terms are used very loosely. 
But for me, I have to wonder, because I'm being factual about what I really have, and I do have borderline, uh, possibly borderline personality disorder, but most definitely bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder, uh, maybe it's a way that I think I'm going to be able to connect with a person. And because in that moment, I so desperately want to connect with that person. And whether it be because I just can't keep my mouth shut, because I am just so so destined to get whatever it is out of my mind, into my mouth, and out to that person, because I am so manic. You would think that I would just avoid doing it as much as possible. Because oversharing, without a doubt, and I noticed this when I was in the school, can definitely make people feel overwhelmed. And more importantly, it can, it can intensify that relationship. And what I mean by that, and this is very important, because this is what happened to me, it could actually cause you or me to feel overly vulnerable with people that you've shared that personal stuff with, which in retrospect can actually make your bipolar symptoms flare up. (laughs) I mean, that's really what ultimately happens. Look at what ended up happening with me. Paranoia sets in. It's, it's inappropriate unless again, it's, it's, with very close friends and you don't want to become someone that people actively avoid you don't want to become that person you don't want people avoiding you because of the things that you've said it's i know this when people share with me or overshare with me i mean i there are many many times where people just come out and said oh i'm getting a divorce or i'm fighting with my ex or fighting with my wife or fighting with my husband i'm just i'll be in a genuine conversation with a person and they'll start to overshare and i know this it makes me feel awkward so clearly oversharing is probably not the best thing to do especially when it comes to your mental illness. Again, we all overshare, and I would imagine that at some point we've all done it, whether we're diagnosed or not. Maybe not. Maybe this is just a symptom of borderline personality disorder and bipolar disorder. Maybe this is, maybe this is somebody, maybe this is myself seeking sympathy, empathy, or um, wanting people to feel bad for me. This is where the honesty of Mr. Joe really comes out. Now, I don't think that I felt these things when I was sharing. I think it was more of me. Maybe, maybe I'm so proud of myself because of the Suboxone um, tapering. Because I will tell you, one of my coworkers who I shared too much information with and knew I was coming off Suboxone, there we go again, uh, she she actually listens to my podcast, and she's learned a lot about me. So there you go again. The one person that knows exactly who Mr. Joe is. I am certainly not, um, you know, uh, certainly not unknown to her. Certainly not confidential. Mr. Joe is right in her office, but she's learned a heck of a lot about me. And she said to me the other day, she goes, she said, I, I, I look at you, and... 
I, I just can't believe that I work with you and I can't believe what an amazingly strong individual you are and somebody who's been through what you've been through and how you have successfully overcome these problems. I felt like saying, yeah, right. I said, little do you know that I was just craving drugs two hours ago. But ultimately, she's kind of right because whether or not I was craving those drugs, did I go out and do them? No. Those cravings are gone. I was able to work through it. But I did overshare the Suboxone usage with her and, or, or tapering, and she was just, she expressed her, her proudness of me. So maybe that is a component as to why I was oversharing and saying to myself, well, I want to let the world know that I got bipolar disorder, but guess what? Look, someone like me can live with bipolar disorder, and I could just act normal when in, in actuality me oversharing was not normal at all. And I think that's more along what the lines that I was looking or seeking, like, hey, look, this is what's wrong with Mr. Joe, but look, look how good I am. And meanwhile, I'm manic out of my mind. Am I looking just to secure a friendship? Am I looking for somebody to think extra highly of me? Like, wow, look at him. He's so smart. And he has bipolar disorder. But look how wonderful he is with the children. It's possible that somebody would turn around and be like, get this wackadoo out of here. We want this wackadoo working with children. Who's to, who's to know? For, for so many people, they have misconceptions about bipolar disorder. They may turn around and say, well, we don't want Mr. Joe in here. He's got bipolar disorder. Who knows that maybe Tuesday or Wednesday of next week, he'll be crying in the classroom because he's down. Or, you know, maybe he'll be so happy that he'll say the wrong thing sexually, which would not be a far stretch. Now, with Mr. Joe, that has not happened in many, 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 many years. I do recall being in a situation, although for the most part I've remained professional. I remember a sick situation when I was in a preschool classroom and the teacher was very, um, teacher I was working with, same situation, I was consulting for one particular student individual um, in that class, not several students. She was very, very pretty, and um, at the time I was, I was with my wife, my ex-wife, sorry, but also acting horribly with my ex-wife because we were fighting, and I was out doing my bipolar things and meeting other women, and I do, I do believe that I met a woman who actually had bipolar disorder because we were so much alike and she was married and I was married and we both worked in this school and we had this relationship, but yet I couldn't even keep it in check there because I liked the teacher too. And I remember us actually doing a little game with the children, doing hot potato with something, you know, when you pass around a little, little potato and uh, the music plays and I remember her passing the potato to me and it landing in my private parts and me looking up at her and saying something along the lines like, hey, you like that, right? And I, and I stopped myself and I said, oh my God. And I saw the expression on her face and she became red and she became um, taken back and, and, and I, I shut my mouth real quick. And guys, I'm going back almost 20 years ago, maybe 18 years ago, that I remember that situation and how inappropriate it was. And there had been many, many others, believe me. Not recently, not within the last 10 years, but there were many situations where I was inappropriate. And it makes you wonder that how a person would engage in that with you. Do they have the same disorder that you do? Or, as a bipolar person, 
Are you that? Are you just that convincing? Which is something else that we are very convincing, very, very romantic, very. Um, and what is the proper word that I'm looking for? Um, very persuasive. We make you believe whatever we want to make you believe. We tell you what you want to hear, especially us men with bipolar disorder. When we are manic, we are hypersexual. When we are manic, a lot of times we cannot keep our voices in check. We just say whatever the hell we want to say. Unless I'm alone, I don't know. But I want to, I want to imagine that I'm not. Not that I want to imagine. I want to, I imagine. Not that I want to. I, I certainly imagine that I'm not. I can't, I can't think along the lines that this would only be me. And if it is, I gotta work on it myself. And if it's not just me, maybe you could take some of what I said, um, as advice, use it as strategies, or at least maybe the fact that I brought this up for all of us, think about it a little more closely and, Try to think about what we say before we say it and the audience that we are speaking to and what benefits we will get out of saying what we're going to say. Because nine times out of ten, I can almost guarantee that there will be no benefits and the only thing that can happen is self-destruction. There will be no good consequences out of saying the things that we say, out of admitting to the wrong people that we have bipolar disorder. And sharing it. And it's very, very sad because that's the stigma. And I hope one day that it ends. I hope one day that I am able to go out with a megaphone and say, Hello, I have bipolar disorder. Don't judge me. Think of how proud I am of myself and how proud you should be of me. How awesome it is that I can function in this world, in this society with bipolar disorder and not or no longer bash my head through a door and put my fist through a wall. Hello, look, I'm no longer drinking 19, 20 beers at a, at, 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 at a night. I'm no longer smoking marijuana six times a day to maintain my mental stability, or at least so I think. I'm no longer pulling into a parking lot, pulling over, not having a care in the world about what police officer, what authoritative figure might be strolling by, and I'm doing lines on a, on a CD cover of cocaine or breaking up an Oxycontin pill or a Percocet and snorting it up my nose. No, I'm not doing that anymore. Hello, everybody. Guess what? I'm no longer a drug addict. Still got bipolar disorder. And by the way, here are the medications that work for me. I'm on Lamictal. I'm on Wellbutrin. I'm on Seroquel. But I stopped the Seroquel because it made me too heavy and it made me too crazy and it made me too tired. And I started to hear voices. I need to save that stuff for us, at least for now, it's between us, or at least the people that I trust. And even then, some of those people don't want to hear it. If you are living with a mental illness and you're doing well, I ask you to continue to work hard. If you love somebody or care about somebody with a mental illness, as hard as it may be to do this, I ask you to continue to support that person the best way that you know how. And if you are struggling right now with a mental illness, I ask you to continue to fight that fight. And most importantly, soldier on. Thank you for listening to Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. Everybody have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon.